Let's pray once more, shall we? Father, show us our gods that are not gods. And help us to believe that you are God alone. And that the gods whom we are tempted to serve do not serve and do not love. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm a man now of a certain age with children of a certain age such that the sorts of questions I'm getting of late are of this character. So how do you calculate using matrices? Or how do I balance this oxidation reduction equation? And I look at them and that strikes terror into my soul. Because while some of those words are familiar to me, most of the concepts now are not because that was 35 years ago. And there's my problem. And yet, that's not even the worst experience in something like that. Because at the same time that I'm getting questions about things for which I used to have an idea but now don't, now I'm also getting questions that when I first hear them, I think, oh, I know exactly what the answer is to that, and this is exactly how you do it. And then, well this experience happens. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can roll the image. That's not the way you're supposed to do it, Dad. They want us to do it. I don't know that way. Why would they change math? Math is math. Math is math. I'll just wait for Mom to get back. What? Well, she won't understand it any better than I do. Math was perfectly fine at one time. And then they changed all the books. Everything's different now. And I thought, numbers are numbers, man. I want to be of help. And I'm willing to put myself out there and help. And then I only discover that I will actually do more harm than good to their education by trying to help. And in a moment like that, you know what I want to do? Forget math. We're done with that. It's not even on the test. Move it off. Because I'm so frustrated with what they're asking me to learn in order to be of help to my kids. And yet, then when that moment of great you know, frustration passes, I realize that if you listen to mathematicians who really know their stuff, and the way they speak of it, it's almost with awe. Because it is, of all the scientific fields, perhaps one of the most elegant and elemental descriptions of the nature of reality that we might ever give our thought or consideration to. It's math. It's not, it's not just numbers. It's, it's looking behind the veil about the way things are. And it's actually showing us a part of ourselves in the order, in the mystery, in the complexity of all things, and also in its simplicity. So you can't as much as I might be frustrated by the existence of math because I don't understand the way they do it now, you get rid of math, you get rid of a lot. Even in what it demands of you, even in the way it frustrates you. I bring up that little analogy to make this point. Jesus is going to tell us a story today. He's actually going to tell us two stories in the middle of a little sermonette in the middle of a crowd, a kind of an impromptu sermon And I think that the substance of his little parable is to say this. Faith is math. Following him 
is a matter of counting. And as much as you and I might be perplexed or frustrated by math as a subject and want to wipe it from the field, we do that to our own peril, so it is the same way with thinking about faith. If you're not willing to do the math, if you think it's unreasonable to do a little bit of counting, it's to your own peril. It's to your own source of misunderstanding. Jesus is coming to tell us that faith is math, so do the math. And when it comes to counting, he's going to invite us through his stories and his little impromptu sermonette to count in three ways. To count the cost of what it is to follow him. But then by implicit nature, he's also inviting us to count the cost of not following him. And lastly, by his own life, he's asking us to count the cost of him to follow his father for our good. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to do the math. We're going to count the cost to follow him. We're going to count the cost to not follow him. And then we're going to count the cost it cost him to follow his father for our good. If you're in, that's what we're going to do. We're in Luke chapter 14. If you're able to stand, I wonder if you would. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and he's not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the sobering word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you're recovering from what you just heard, you should know that it comes right after something that we gave our attention to a few weeks ago, and it was another parable. And that parable was about a master who gave a great banquet. And he invited all he knew. And at first, everybody says, man, we will be there. And then the day of the banquet, they start sending in their little regrets. Oh, I can't make it. I'm sorry. I bought some oxen. Oh, I got married. Oh, I got to go check out on a piece of land. And every one of those reasons are there to demonstrate these really ridiculous reasons for why you would skip this major banquet given by this master. Like, it would be a joke. And then, so the master can't find those to come to his party, so he invites everybody he can. And those he sends his servants out to invite are the people least 
ever likely to be invited to a party like that. The disfigured, the different, the misfits, the disenfranchised, the maimed. Those that would never be invited to a party. This Jesus parable says they can come in. Let them sit. Let them eat. Let them eat, drink, and be merry. This is for them. They're welcome. And in that parable, if you're listening to that, you're thinking, dude's going to get in trouble for telling a parable like that. Because they're thinking to themselves, we're the last people that would ever get invited to the party that God would throw. And now this Jesus is saying that God invites those least likely ever to be invited and says, sit at my table. You're welcome. And you're welcome on no conditions. You're welcome just because I wanted you here. And when people hear that, they go, oh my, I could get in on that. So when Jesus tells this parable, it's, it's actually out to kind of jar everybody a little bit. Because in a moment like that, when you just heard the parable of the great banquet, you can sort of conclude to yourself that, wow, that following God is to just indulge yourself and recline a table, and it's all going to be great because he's very generous. And to be sure, that's true. And yet what this parable is out to tell us and to tell them is that, yes, to believe God is to believe that you've been welcomed into his family and into his table simply on the basis of his gracious choice, period. No discussion. But furthermore, to believe God is to follow him. And to follow him is at cost. It is more than simply reclining and indulging in his generosity. It is to walk as he does. It is, as one theologian put it, it is not an invitation to an ice cream social. It is an invitation to follow. And to follow is at cost. And that cost are not small. Not to join his family but to know what it's like to inhabit the house that he has built. And so he is inviting us to think. There's plenty of things that we might think about in this life, and emotions are surely good on their own merit, and they have great benefit and can give an insight into the real thing. But Jesus is saying this, when it comes to following him, you have to give some consideration to it. And that's why he pushes these two little parables, these two little stories in vastly different settings. One who is building a tower, another who is thinking about prosecuting a battle with another king. Vastly different settings, but all with a single point. Then when it comes to following him, you got to think about it a little bit here. you got to reckon with what it is you're in with. You've got to reckon what it is to know him, to trust him, to believe that he is for you, and to believe that he's called you to something. you got to think about it. I moved from Texas two years ago on Thursday. And 30 years ago in Texas, just south of where I lived, they built this thing, or they started to build this thing called the Particle Accelerator in Waxahachie, Texas. A huge hole in the ground that was going to have like a 50-mile radius. And they were going to shoot particles all around it. And what happened? Cost overruns, massive parties, big mismanagement and corruption, and the government shuts the whole project down. You can go to Waxahachie, Texas today and see the buildings that are all overcovered with grass. And you can look down deep in the hole, and all it is is big, one big hole in the ground. They didn't think about what it would cost. Jesus is inviting us, first of all, in the parable, 
with the, sound, the, the sermon surrounding it to consider the cost. And in that sense, he's talking about three kinds of cost. The first cost comes in terms of your loves and your loyalties. Those who you know, who love you, whom you love, and who you properly do so, that you're in league with, that you're aligned with, that you have an allegiance to. And he would say to us that there is a cost to following him when it comes to thinking about those other loves and loyalties. And he says it there in verse 26. Listen to it once more. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And the first word we all gravitate to is this little word, hate. And we think, hate? Hate? I thought we were supposed to love everybody. Yes. It's a way of speaking. It's not a true hatred, like I wish you were dead, or like, you know, forgive me teenagers, the stereotypical, you never get me and I wish I were never born. You know, that kind of hatred. It's nothing like that. He's using that hatred, and it's in a matter of speaking. It's a, it's a, it's a matter of comparison. That when it comes to what it means to love and be subservient and be in league with Jesus, that by comparison, it's almost as if you're saying, i got to hate those whom I properly love and are, and are in line with and who I will weep with and whose bedside I will come to when they are sick. Comparably speaking, he, in degree, is calling us to a different kind and a different order into an order of magnitude in terms of allegiance. And you hear hints of this in what Jesus says elsewhere. If you were in Matthew chapter 12 and you, and you hear him, he's just finished up a sermon and some friends come to him and he say, hey, psst, psst, mom, brothers, they're outside waiting for you. And Jesus kind of takes that comment as an opportunity to ask this question, who are my mother and my brothers? Who, who, who are they really? They're the ones that do the will of my Father in heaven. Now, he's not throwing mom and brothers under the bus. He's not saying, you're not my parents, you're not my family. He's saying what's really thick, the true loyalty to which we're all called and the cost to which we're all invited to subscribe to is believing that the one who is ours, the one to whom all blessings flow and from all blessings flow, he's the one to whom we answer. He is not just our life coach. He's the one that set the earth on its axis spinning. And therefore, in terms of loyalty, we give it to him. This hurts. Because if you're in that day and you hear Jesus say what he said, you're, going, they're th- you're thinking, whoa, <laughs> wait a minute. Family? You're coming at my family? That's sacred cow stuff. Like, don't do that. If you were here with us last at the beginning of last summer and we we listened to Tim Keller's talks on, in Questioning Christianity, and we talked about the way identity is formed and how a, a traditional identity, which is sort of Im, Im illustrated here and what we're talking about here, traditional identity is formed by um, who your family is, where you live, what the vocation of your family is. And if you try to separate yourself from any of those things that define your identity, you start to feel a little disoriented, and they start to look at you like you're like the enemy. That's then. Now, how do we form identities? Identities are formed on, like, um, what is your education? Um, what do you do for a living? Uh, what's your socioeconomic status? Um, how do you vote? All of those things kind of form your identity in your mind. And if you start to suggest that there's something else to which all those other things are subservient, people start to look at you like, oh, man, not my kind, not my tribe. And when we 
risk having our identity defined by something else. We start to feel that. And if we start to feel that, we start to feel like maybe this isn't worth it. Because look, if you walk as he does, if you're to hate as he says here, then what you're inviting possibly is being ostracized from your parents. What you're perhaps inviting into your life is if you have a spouse or you have a dear friend, you might be having to walk into conflict with them rather than avoid it at all costs. And everybody loves that, right? It means you might have to invite bizarre, if not defiant looks from your kids. And all because you're trying to make Jesus the one unto whom you're ultimately responsible and accountable to. And that... You think in those terms, and you start to feel it, and you go, I, I feel that, and I'm not sure I want to follow that feeling very much. And Jesus is looking at us. He's not saying to us, oh, get over it. He's not doing that. He's saying, I know it hurts, but follow me. It costs. It may cost in terms of our loyalties and our loves, but it also may cost in terms of the way that you and I try to find our approval and our stability. He says there in verse 27, again very starkly, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, you bear the cross. You know what that means. You know he bore his own. He had to carry his cross to his own place of execution. And surely Jesus promises them and promises anybody that might follow him. There may very well be this thing in your life called persecution. And that's the full flowering, the the ultimate end of something that is in seed form, this thing we might just call rejection. Where people are going to look at you and think all sorts of thoughts about you if you raise any sort of idea about Jesus, whether you speak for him or speak that you're about him or what you did with him or how he influences your life or maybe even inviting others to think about him, just to think about him. In that day, you mentioned Jesus in any way, in any sort of hallowed way, you were either going to be accused of blasphemy by Jews or being absolutely absurd, absurd by Greek philosophers or you might even be considered an enemy of the state by anybody that's in Roman occupation. That's what you're inviting by being forward about it. In our day, you know, it's very possible that you'll be thought of as a narrow person. That you found your little way to navigate your life and you've walled yourself off from all sorts of different interpretations and ideas. And so you're kind of just narrow and you have to deal with that. Or some people might think that um, you are the biggest threat to the improvement and evolution of society known to man. And you're in the way. And the sooner you die, the better. Others may lop you in, uh, sort of a guilt by association thing, with the worst parts, the most public and worst parts of the church. There, you, you, they see all that on, on wherever, and, and they hear that you're a Christian, and they're like, you, them, must be the same. And you go, do you even talk to me? Do you want to even know what I think? You'll be... Maybe denied, you might be dissed, you might be disregarded, you might be disenfranchised, you might be denied access, who knows? That stuff comes, and it just comes, and that's the cost. It's where it goes. It's how it happens. And it's the risk we take. 
There's a cost in terms of our loves and loyalties. There's a cost that comes in how we find our approval or our acceptance, our stability. There's one other cost that Jesus speaks of, and he speaks of it there in verse 33. It's the last verse of the text, and it says this. Anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And the word there for renounce is, in Jesus' words, translated in other places as saying goodbye, uh, bidding farewell. And Jesus is at some level, somewhere on a spectrum, saying, you must bid farewell, you must hold loosely everything that you possess, if not be generous with it already. You must think of it in a certain kind of way, and not hoard it, if you will. And so that's why you remember uh, a few weeks ago when we listened to what Peter says to Jesus there in, in Matthew 19, uh, the rich young ruler has just walked off because Jesus has said, hey, you got to sell all you have, give it to the poor and follow me, and that's a bridge too far for that guy. And he walks off, and he walks away saddened, and, and the disciples look at him and say, well, God, who can be saved? And, and with, Jesus says, with God, anything is possible. And then Peter looks at Jesus and says, hey, um, check it out. Look at everything we left behind to follow you. Look at all that we gave up. And Jesus, in that moment, reassures Peter and all his disciples that those sacrifices will not have been in vain, ever. Now, so far, when it comes to the cost, um, this may be the one that most messes with us in 21st century Western civilization. You know, the part about, you know, you might kind of get sideways with family or loved ones because of Jesus. And like, okay, check, fine. Um, and people might look with you with a certain suspicion or uh, not invite you to lunch, and you might have to bear that, and you go, all right, fine. But when Jesus starts talking about, yeah, you need to kind of maybe have a looser grip on everything that you have and maybe think that maybe most of what you have is really not for your own good. And then we think, man, them's fighting words. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we, we tend to think when it comes to sacrifices or, or renouncing all that we have, we think of it in, in, in terms of what's the least I need you know, in order to be okay with God. And, and even when I think in those terms, I think about, like, what's the least I can give, but how can I maximize my tax benefit? And that's the mentality that Jesus is pushing back against. Not so much in terms of the percentage of income, so much as the way that you think of what you have. Not so much in terms of hard dollars, but more this. What you get out of your stuff in terms of how you define your security and your identity. If you make that stuff, your stuff, in certain such a way that if you lose it, you think you're nothing, Jesus is saying, man, you're enslaved. And then you become unavailable to what I need you to be in this world on my behalf. It's not a terms of percentage. It's a way in which you see the purposes of what I have given you. And that comes at a cost. And it certainly comes at a cost just the way we think about it. So there it is. What is the cost of following him? It does cost us. It may very well cost us in terms of loves and loyalties. It may very well cost us in terms of how we find our sense of acceptance and approval. And it may very well cost us in terms of where we think and find our happiness and our security. And we think, thanks, no thanks. Too high, bar too high. Can't go there. And that's where it invites a little reflection. Because yes, explicitly, Jesus is inviting us to think about what is the cost of following him. But implicitly, I would argue, Jesus is asking us to count the cost of not following him in these ways. 
Like the cost is even higher if you don't go where he goes, even though what he asks us is going seems like too much that we can afford. So just take for a moment the instance about what it means to hate, to hate those we love in the way that he means. If you don't hate them in the way that he means, my argument to you is that you're actually hating them in a different way, in a true way, in a real kind of hatred way. And let me, let me unpack that by way of a silly example and then a little thicker one. Uh, raise your hand if you ever saw Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Many of you, right? And every kid except Charlie has this in common. Their parents think they are gods, think their children are gods. Because they'll do just about anything and everything that that kid demands of them. Bianca, daddy's coming. Are you going to be okay? Right? Every one of them. They, they have learned uh, to put their parents on a string, wrapped around their finger, and the parents are co-conspirators in the effort. Right? And what happens? What is the outcome of that willingness Not to hate them as Jesus means, but to love them in this way that they teach them into gods. They make their kids into little gods, and those gods become snakes that eat their own tails. And everyone has their own little comeuppance, and they fall flat, and it's just one of the subtexts of the whole storyline there. They think they're loving their kids in that moment, but it's actually a form of hatred because they're turning them into things that they are not. And treating them in ways that actually does them a disservice. And that's a true form of hatred. And I know that's an extreme example. So let me pick a little different one. It's also a form of work of fiction, but I think it's even more poignant. Raise your hand if you ever read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Short book, wonderful book. You should go get it on Kindle this afternoon. Now, it's imaginative, to be sure. And it imagines a bus ride of people who live in hell taking a bus ride to the outskirts of heaven. And the closer that these hellish ghosts get close to heaven, they start to become a little bit more thin and translucent and and insubstantial. And then they're met by these heavenly spirits who are the most solid, real thing they've ever seen and really ever were. And so Lewis tells several chapters, each with a different scene in which one of these hellish ghosts meets with one of these heavenly spirits. And in one chapter, you meet one of these hellish ghosts who was a mother whose child had died when he was a teenager. And now she has come to heaven and she is ready to see him. And she chafes and spits and curses and says, I want to see him now, now. And the way Lewis portrays what it means to really understand what happens to us if we understand the Lord Jesus is that we, become, we, we, are, we are thin people and we become thick. We become real at last. We become solid. We become human. We become his. And in this moment, one of these heavenly spirits comes and tells this mother, you can't see him yet. Not because he's not available, but because you're not able to see him yet, because you're not thick yet. And so he has this little back and forth with her, and the spirit says to her this, you'll become solid enough for him to perceive you when you learn to want someone else besides him. She pushes back. She says, who are you? I believe in a God of love. How dare you keep him from me? And then the spirit says back to her, you're treating God only as a means to Michael. But the whole thickening treatment consists in learning to want God for his own sake. You cannot love a fellow creature fully till you love God. In other words, this, Holy, this spirit is saying to her, unless you hate your son, hate, 
you can't love him because all your love is then is oppressive. So let me put those two very fanciful stories in their real concrete terms. Nobody wakes up someday if you're married and says, you know what, I think I'm going to treat my spouse as a god. Now, I tried to get my wife to do that once, and it didn't work out, for which I'm thankful. But friends, look, you can unintentionally turn your spouse or a good friend into a god, and when you do that, you lay expectations upon them. They'll never satisfy. And you will think you're just asking them to love you or for you to love them, but what you're actually doing is oppressing them. And if you try to make your children into the one thing that secures most of your happiness, do you know what you've just done? You've laid upon them a pressure they don't deserve and a guilt they will walk with for a long time. Because you're not hating them as Jesus intended. God is your God and no one else. And if you put anybody else in that slot, it's a greater cost than than following him. That's that. But, but what about in terms of trying to find your acceptance through everybody? If, if, you, if you refuse to ever speak of him or ever give thanks for him in a public way or ever even invite people to even consider him, if, if you make that something you can never do and you make their perceptions of you the most important thing possible, do you know how that costs you? That invites you into a lifelong experience of great uncertainty and the utmost exhaustion. Because if you're always concerned with what can I say or do to make sure I never step on their toes and they never feel offended by me and they're always sweet and smiling and never, never upset with me, oh my gosh, it's tiring. I know. Because you're trying to find your acceptance and your stability there. And what you also invite yourself up to is missing out on the opportunity to be courage for others. Because sometimes people just need someone to step out and courage so that they might have the courage to join in on that same idea. And it costs. But if you think about it, it costs more not to follow Jesus as he intends than it is to follow him as he wants. But last of all, when it comes to this thing about renunciation, don't, don't immediately run to the idea of like how much percentage do I have to give away or, or how much dollar amounts do I determine in terms of generosity. Don't think of it like those in concrete terms. That'll actually let you off the hook sooner than he intends. The greater cost to us if we don't follow Jesus in terms of what he means by renunciation is that we're inviting a life of self-deception. And by that, I'm getting a little help from an article I read this week by a Yale law professor by the name of David Markovitz. He teaches at Yale. He wrote an article last week about the meritocracy, which is just a highfalutin word of the way in which our culture is built, that what it is is that the way society is built is that you advance through high achievement. And those who are high achievers get to stay within this very privileged class, and anybody else that doesn't measure up to whatever that arbitrary standard is, you're screened out. Now, I am not making an argument for meritocracy. Uh, Daniel Markovitz is certainly not against the idea of high achievement. But after decades of teaching among the most brilliant sectors of society, he has made this very clear conclusion. If you let what drives this society drive you, this is what he says. 
It is simply not possible to get rich off your own human capital without exploiting yourself and impoverishing your inner life. And meritocrats who hope to have their cake and eat it too deceive themselves. If I were to do a little thought experiment with all of you, and I asked you to think about how much, what, what, what did you have 20 years ago? And do you have more now in terms of whatever it is, an income or possessions, whatever it is? If I asked you, if you have more now than you did then, or if you had more then and you have less now, in whatever circumstance that was, if I asked you the question, when you have or had more, are you happier? What would your answer be? Are you happier? Now, studies show pretty clearly, if you're in poverty and you get lifted out of poverty, that's better. If you're not having to find food under a bridge, but instead can go to the refrigerator, that's better quality of life. But the other studies that all they compare are people whose net worth have increased over time. They can't point to a correlation in improved happiness. And so that's the irony, right? We either drift or sprint toward this thing that we think will make us happier and we discover through our own observations of it that it doesn't. And Jesus is saying, I told you. You run for all of that that makes you less available to me and now you're coming to me wondering why you're not any happier. It's a greater cost not to listen to what he has to say as sobering as it is to hear of what he has to say. That's the greater cost to not following him. And it's even greater than the cost of following him if we press it out into its logical conclusions. Now, okay. Fine. What I am not saying to you then is that whole Shia LaBeouf thing on YouTube, just do it! Right? You've seen that, right? Just sort of find the will, whatever you want to, just do it! Right? Just follow me! That's not Jesus' words. And if you think that's what he's saying, you're not listening. Yes, count the cost of following him. And yes, count the cost of not following him. But what you have to do, what you can't not do, is you can't fail to count the cost of what it cost him to follow his father for your sake. In telling this parable, Jesus is not just sort of telling a nice story and he's not just sort of outlining a little ethic. You know what he's doing? He's... He's telegraphing his autobiography. Before he practiced it, he preached it. And here he's preaching what he practiced throughout his life and what he certainly practiced there. Because for him to go there, you know what he has to do? He has to be okay with while he loves those he loved and even loved those he hated, it was never at the expense of pursuing the mission he had from his father. And when it comes to rejection, there were plenty of moments where he thought, this is a bridge too far, I can't go there. And even in the garden, he's going, is there any other way, man? But not my will, but yours. And so Hebrews chapter 12 says, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross and despised its shame. He didn't care about the rejection he was going to walk into. He let that be on his ledger of lesser value than what he would gain by it. And in order 
to be able to stay on mission and despise the shame of rejection, he had to renounce anything else that he might lay a claim to. And he did that all for one reason. So that all would be forgiven. So that reconciliation would be ours. So that we would be adopted into his family for no other reason than that he wanted us there. That's the news he spoke of. That's the news he's actually talking here. And that's the news that you and I have to come to learn to trust. Because otherwise, all you're hearing me say is, just do it. He isn't saying that. He's saying, look what I have done in love for you. And then when you hear that, and you believe that is beautiful, and the Spirit captivates you in that, then you will say, um, it cost me in a way, but not like I thought, and without regret. What do you do with this passage? As a disciple, you are one who would believe that God is sought by you. He is sought by you both personally and in community. But he is also the one who is taught to you through what you find in here, through the rhythms that you cultivate, and through the relationships that you form with those who have been around the block a few more times. God is sought by you. God is taught to you. And lastly, God is wrought in you. Through your own obedience and your failures of obedience. Through your own repentance and your recurrent steps towards repentance. And through your prayers, both weak and meager and muddled and sporadic. He is wrought in you through those. But all because you believe one thing. You were bought in him. And on that count alone is the mark of a disciple. If you're not his... I invite you to put your trust in him. And if you are his, I invite you to renew your consideration of what it means to follow him. Not that you would live up to his standard or compensate him for what he did, but to believe that he deserves it, that he's worth it, and because love never fails. Let's pray. Father, help us to hear the high calling but help us also to hear the even higher grace, the deeper grace and mercy that is beneath it. That is the only thing that could empower and sustain it. And whatever it is that is before us, whatever it is that we need help to walk, to do the next right thing in you, I ask that you would help us to hear your love and take heart in it and find then the courage to walk in your way. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.